Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures, where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, The Future Of, we chat with experts in various sectors to learn about what they are doing to shift the critical now for a radical new future. I am Dr. Amber Johnson, Executive Director of the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity, and I will be your host for this episode. Welcome. Today, we are super excited to welcome Dr. Jaden Yannick, a former Donald D. Harrington Graduate Fellow and PhD candidate in the African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, and currently an Assistant Professor of Modern U.S. History at St. Olaf College. His research focuses on U.S. prison abolition, organizing in the 20th and 21st century, as well as LGBTQ history, abolition, and popular culture. We are super excited to talk about the future of abolition and how we move from where we are now with a huge contest around defund the police into a space where people feel free and peace in their bodies. Welcome, Dr. Yannick. It's so good to have you here. It's good to be here. All right. So talk to me about your research. I'm excited to talk about abolition today and to really ground it in something that people can understand and, and walk away with. Yeah. Um, so I'll say uh, just just off the jump that my wanting to research abolition comes from organizing, um, from my experience as an organizer in St. Louis um, and experiencing how ineffective reformist uh, organizing was in changing our material conditions. Um, and so I really went to graduate school to see what other, I knew about abolition. I considered myself to be an abolitionist. I didn't have the historical grounding to really understand what people were doing um, beyond just the theory of abolition. So that's why I went to graduate school and that's that's where this project comes from. Um, I will say that uh, my research really looks at um, 21st century, late 20th century, early 21st century prison abolitionist organizing around the United States. And I'm looking at how different organizations are using theory and practice together to really shift uh, material conditions. Um, and I'm very, I'm really excited to to share some of this with you today. And um, hopefully, you know, the listeners will will have some uh, feedback, and we can continue this conversation beyond this uh, forum. Sure. So let's let's start with defund the police. The hashtag that gained notoriety. Tell me what year that was, because my brain and COVID years do not align anymore. <laughs> Fair. Um, so. 2020 was uh, May, June 2020 is when uh, that started catching fire within the greater populace. So you're talking right after George Floyd's murder. Right. So 2020, defund the police becomes a hashtag. People start talking about it. It's a national conversation. What were some of the critiques you had around that conversation regarding how people approached it, both from the pro-defund the police side and the anti-defund the police side? Great question. 
I was having this conversation at a conference uh, last week, and um, yeah, we were talking about some of the the problems with our messaging in that moment. I will say um, from the sort of opponents of defund the police, folks on, we'll talk about the right, and then we can talk about the leftist critiques. Uh, folks on the right were like, if we defund the police, how will we be safe? That was a refrain that we heard over and over and over again. I will say also like just standard liberals were saying the same thing. Like if we defund the police, safety will be compromised and it will just be um, anarchy. And they use that term uh, negatively. I do not, but they use that term negatively. On uh, In terms of leftists, sort of folks were like, defund the police is basic. That's the baseline. That That is the, the lowest um, rung that we need. Why is that the demand we're putting forth now in this moment where we have momentum, we have support, we have an opening, we have an opening to do something really amazing. Why are we stopping at defund the police? And now I will speak as Jaden, the person and scholar. Defund the police as a demand is not something that was invented in 2020. I think it's important to to add some historical grounding to this. Defund the police has been a demand since the mid 20th century, even before um, in in the United States, at least. I can speak to that. Can't speak to what's going on anywhere else, but I can speak to that. So defund the police is not new. Um, In terms of messaging in the movement for Black Lives, defund the police seemed to be like a catch-all demand that could get folks um, as like an entry point into questioning the um, necessity for police and then ultimately for prisons, um, for carceral practices, for capitalism, um, so on and so forth. I think in the messaging of defund the police, we did not do a good enough job in that George Floyd, Breonna Taylor portal moment. We didn't do a good enough job of explaining what we meant. Because now we have um, folks, we're just going to use liberals um, as an umbrella term. Uh, we have like <laughs> liberals saying, yeah, I agree with defund the police. That's why we need to have more black officers. So like there is a, a critical misunderstanding of what people actually, what organizers mean when we say defund the police. It's not just take a little bit of money from the police and put it somewhere else, ultimately bringing it back to the police. And that, that seems to be the um, understanding of a critical mass of people and and so I, I I talked about this at the the conference I was at. I said, you know, I, we had this moment where it felt like abolition was on the tongues of everyday people. Abolitionist principles were being discussed at kitchen tables, at the water cooler. We had a chance to really do something, and ultimately, I I think as a scholar and as a person that we lost that moment. Um, that we lost that moment in terms of our messaging. We lost that moment in terms of really gallivanting um, the existing organizations that we had. We had a huge influx of money, which is great. 
but what has tangibly come from that? If we look at, um, I, you know, I live in Austin right now. I'm going to moving to Minneapolis. We can use both of those cities as examples. Both cities claimed that they were doing defunding work um, within the uh, city, uh, the municipal government. So the city councils in both places said that they were defunding the police. We celebrated these things as huge wins. In Austin, we were able to divert a significant amount of money in the millions away from the police to um, social services. Um, in Minneapolis, they, uh, the, the city council agreed that the police needed to be defunded. And what has happened in both of those cities is the opposite. Um, that ultimately, uh, Austin, in, in that 2020 moment, took money away from the police. In 2021, the police in Austin got the largest budget they've ever gotten in history of Austin. Um, in Minneapolis, same thing. And, uh, an absurd increase in police funding. Um, and if I can get on my soapbox a little bit longer, um, in Minneapolis, uh, to really talk about this um, identity politics in a bad way. I'm not talking about the identity politics of the Kumbahi River Collective. I'm talking about a, a small I, small P identity politics. In Minneapolis, the um, the city council chair is a black trans woman. She is one of the first black trans women to serve um, in a major municipal government position out um, Andrea Jenkins. And what we've seen from her leadership in terms of actual um, work has been very, very regressive. And so I, I just, I, I want to bring that up because I think we'll probably get into some of this later. This, this idea that if we have the right people in the right boxes in these places of power, that somehow um, abolition or even some sort of liberative um, action will happen. And it, it, it's just not true. If our politics are not aligned, it doesn't matter. Let, let's just, that's a whole word. Let's just sit in there for a second, right? Let's just sit in that muck for a second, because I think what you just said captures the essence of why every equity, inclusion, diversity, fake affirmative action wannabe policy has failed to date. Because we have been so focused on having the right quote unquote person to do this work versus looking at the systems that need to do the work, right? So whether it's higher ed, what do we do in higher ed when we say, oh, our, our black and brown students are feeling disenfranchised, our black and brown faculty and staff are feeling disenfranchised, let's create programs so they can show up differently. Instead of saying, let's destabilize this institution so it can show up differently, right? When we talk about education in the K-12 sector, same thing. And so I remember when I was in high school, there were all these early childhood education programs where we asked parents of black and brown children, poor children, rural children to bring their children to school earlier so that they could be ready. When we look at healthcare, right, and we look at all these health disparities, we are asking patients do all these things before you show up so we can treat you better. Nowhere in this, in this whole matrix 
is there a conversation about how these systems show up differently, right? And so that that when you get into the little I, little P of identity politics, it's like, well, we hired this Black trans woman. Everything's fixed now. Or we hired this DEI consultant who, who was an indigenous scholar from, from, from these here U.S. states. It's going to be fine, right? And then we check the box and it's never fine. It's never fine. So how do we then begin having honest conversations about what it means to destabilize systems versus asking people to show up differently? Like, how do we get from point A to point B at the kitchen table, you know, in these household conversations? Yeah, I think um, to really address your point about systems versus like trying to come at this uh, interpersonal level and never quite getting to the systemic level. I think one of the ways that, uh, to shift it back to my research, one of the ways that these organizations are doing that is by instituting uh, what Ruthie Gilmore and others call non-reformist reforms. Um, so these are ways of meeting people's material needs in the here and now as we work towards abolition. So this can look like mutual aid. Uh, this can look like harm reduction, having, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, so edit out if I'm not. Um, but this can look like uh, safe injection sites. This can look like decriminalizing sex work. Um, these are all ways that we can interject in these systems to shift material realities and not put that burden on individuals. Um, but it is to say that the work of shifting material conditions right now and building futures where these conditions don't exist that work is happening simultaneously. And if we do one without the other, we will simply keep recreating the same paradigm that we keep saying is really, really bad. Okay, so let's let's stick on this topic of your research because I think it's really important research and I think it it has the um the potential to to change how people even approach what abolition is. So for our readers who might not be well-versed in these conversations. Can you give us a definition? What's your definition of abolition? What does that look like? Great question. Um, abolition is a theory and a praxis of destabilizing the carceral state, that is jails, prisons, detention facilities, and also the ways that carceral practices like um, out-of-school suspensions, uh, policing of, of gender uh, in terms of bathrooms and clothing, how uh, it's destabilizing those things, the carceral state, while also um, cultivating livable lives um, for us all. So I, I look at abolition as a Black liberation project. There are others who look at abolition in, in different ways in terms of highlighting uh, the queer and trans folks. I do a little bit of that too, but I'm looking at abolition um, through a Black Studies lens because that is uh, my grounding in terms of um, the way that I was raised intellectually. Um, abolition and reform are related but separate. Um, a lo lots of what we, we sort of hear from a uh, um, policy standpoint, uh, the things that we hear in terms of um, adding more black police officers, 
adding body cameras, getting public access to body cam footage, civilian oversight boards, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are considered to be reformist reforms. Reformist reforms expand the reach of the carceral state, whereas abolition is looking to shrink it through non-reformist reforms. Reformist reforms give the police more money, more power, um, and more surveillance um, jurisdiction. So abolitionists are looking to both work within the world that we've been given um, in terms of the racial capitalistic world that we've been given to impact people's material needs now, while also trying to shift the paradigm with which we're working in to create a more just world. Thank you for that. You said that so clearly and so fluidly, and I appreciate I appreciate that framing, right? So the and on the one hand, we have these policies that really are band-aids that provide more funding to the, the carceral system. On the other hand, we have these ideas, these very imaginative and innovative ideas that truly do reposition how we fund things, um, what is funded and who benefits from what is funded. And so in your research then, what is the what are the steps to take to begin sort of breaking down the barriers that prevent that latter move? Mm. In terms of like preventing this slippage into expanding the carceral state while trying to shrink it? Yep. Okay. Uh, good question. Um, we, great question. Go, and look, if these are like, if this on this good old Monday morning, you would rather have a lighter conversation, we can. No, this is great. No. Hey, fix it, Jaden, no. fix it. No, I don't have the answers, but I can give you some examples. <laughs> that's what I, I think that's what we need, right? Because if we had the answers, we wouldn't be here. Period. Like, nobody has the answers. Clearly. I love that. When students are like, what do we do? And I'm like, baby, if I knew that, I wouldn't be here teaching you. I'd be doing it. <laughs> yeah. But I need your mind <laughs> so we can figure this thing out. Yeah. No, we need, we need everybody. And it's nobody has the answers. You know, I've spent five years um, plus, you know, my just like, I, I wouldn't have called it research at the time. But it, as a college student in St. Louis, doing the work that I was doing, I suppose some of that was grounded research. Um, but yeah, I've spent all this time doing research on abolition. If if I had the answers, trust me, it would be on every billboard, and we would be we would be ready to go. Um, but we're not there. And and I one of the uh, to circle it back. Let me ground myself so I don't ramble. Um, to circle it back to my research, one of the reasons why I wanted to look at how abolition has been cultivated in the past 20 years is to really make clear what people have tried, what worked, what didn't work, and what we can learn from the stuff that didn't work. What I found is that um, in trying to bring more consciousness to abolition from a sort of the public consciousness, trying to shift the public consciousness to abolition, 
scholars, organizers, etc., have shied away from talking about the dialectic in abolition work publicly. That it's easier to have like the public, here's what we're about, we're down, it's beautiful, we're shifting and rocking, and then have private conversations about how messed up our organizations are internally. When the way that our organizations work internally and how they may or may not be messed up impacts the work that we're doing publicly. They're not separate. This public-private divide um, isn't real. <laughs> it just it doesn't work. Uh, many people have said that outside of organizing research. Many people have said that. So I will give an example of how folks are, are thinking about um, shifting uh, this carceral lens. So I'll use an example from an organization I'm a part of. So in 2020, I became a member of Black Youth Project 100, BYP 100. We are celebrating our 10-year anniversary in July. So it's very exciting. Um, abolitionist orgs don't usually last this long. Black liberation orgs don't usually last this long. Um, but that's not without it, its complexities. So I, I bring up this particular example because I think it gets into uh, the thick of it. <laughs> uh, into the thick of it. So BYP 100 was founded um, in 2013 by Kathy Cohen, a uh, political scientist, um, scholar, organizer, in addition to um, 100 Black youth. They were gathered at, um, at a convention when the um, acquittal of George Zimmerman came down. And the youth at the gathering um, really came together in lamentation and anger, righteous anger, and said no more. These folks ended up founding BYP 100. And in the years since, the organization has developed a Black queer feminist lens to look at abolition. Those principles didn't just come up at when they decided to join the organization or form the organization. Those principles came through struggle internally. I think it's important to mention that because I think we often skip over some of those steps that these things don't just happen out of the blue. People have to have really difficult discussions and some people have to be left behind in order to get us where we're trying to go. So BYP 100 has been around um, since then for the, the 10 years that I, I spoke about. We have chapters in Chicago and Milwaukee, uh, a national chapter, New Orleans, Jackson, and we've had other chapters throughout our lifetime. But in 2020, we had, um, just like the world had this breaking open moment, BYP did too. Um, we, I'll skip over some of the stuff that happened, but I'll get to the big stuff. We had this moment where um, members of different chapters came together and wrote a letter, an open letter to the staff, demanding that staff um, step down, that we change the fact that BYP is a 501c3 and c4 organization, so we are a nonprofit and do electoral organizing, 
and to shift the financial or shift the funding that we had in the millions to actually attend to um, the members' needs. You know, obviously, I will ground us again. 2020, not only was uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's protests, but was also the opening of this um, massive death event we call COVID-19. And people were struggling. Everyone was struggling. And people within our organization were struggling and felt like national staff were nowhere to be found. We had um, a, a an all-member call. It was supposed to be an hour. It ended up being six. We had a, a very famous transformative justice facilitator um, facilitating the call. And people's emotions were just spilling. It was... Um, just a, like a massive lamentation event. There were 200 people on the call, including some of the original founders of BYP. And out of that call, chapters decided to leave. So we no longer had a DC chapter. We no longer had an Atlanta chapter. We no longer had a Detroit chapter. And these were, this happened publicly. There were medium articles and people publicly saying this organization no longer does, it doesn't do what it says it does. When that happened, things shifted. People left, um, the chapters, but also national staff left. You know, Twitter was a buzz um, with folks being like, I told you so, I knew they were messed up since whenever. But I, I mentioned this moment because I think it's important to really think about what happens when our theory doesn't materialize its practice. And how can we shift so that that doesn't happen? So one of the foundational features of BYP has been a focus on healing and safety. That's been, um, from the beginning, that has been something that BYP has worked on. Now, um, how that has worked in, in previous, previously, it can be debated, but I will give you, um, as I do in my research, an understanding of, of how that works and how that praxis might bring us to a better understanding of, not understanding, but even a, a materialization of abolition. So in BYP, um, we began um, within a couple of years of the organization, there was the establishment of a healing and safety team, a healing and safety core team. And these folks focused on um, education about sexual violence, education about harmful masculinity, <laughs> masculinities, um, but also, so in that dismantling work, there was also creation work. So there was a focus on building altars when we had meetings. So ushering in ancestral spirits to our work from um, organizers like Ella Baker, Malcolm X, 
Fred Hampton to our kin, just our, our, our families, and how those people have formed us and hopefully will lead us to the place we need to go. In addition to that, there's always been childcare involved in BYP. So anytime there's a meeting, the children have somewhere to be. We, we feed each other at all of our meetings so that we're physically sustained um, and can actually focus on the, on the work of liberation. We have a whole pot of money for people who are struggling within the organization if they need rent assistance, food, any of those basic needs that often don't get met because of racial capitalism, we have ways to do that, to mobilize, to make that happen. And this structure, I think, is a small-scale version of what society ought to look like. What it ought to look like when we live in community with one another. We don't always have to agree. And we don't. <laughs> we don't always agree. But there is a fundamental refusal to negate each other's humanity. And that, that I think is what abolitionists are working towards on a larger scale. But the only way we get to the big scale is by practicing and messing up on a small scale. We have to sit there too. We have to sit in that muck too. So abolition is a fundamental refusal to negate each other's humanity. Wow. So one, why is that so hard? And then two, I'm wondering how we get there when clearly there is a refusal to even accept certain groups as human. Right. And that, I mean, that's the fundamental rub here. That's the problem. Because, you know, I, I think about moments. I just had, I just had Keena Reed on the podcast. And we talked about the future of the present and what it means to be present in one's body and how do we find peace and peace equity. And one of the things that she brought up that was so powerful was how she responds to police when she's pulled over. And we talked about this notion, right? Kanye West said it some time ago, like, you know, Black people, we'd rather buy a Benz than feed our people or something. And we just, we spin, 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 right? And so there's this stereotype around Black folks' spending habits as being um, immature, um, unproductive, and problematic, right? And that's a stereotype. I want to say that real clearly. It's a stereotype. But we talked about how a lot of times Black folks purchase things and live in spaces and chase titles to survive. And so we talked about the notion of, you know, when you're being pulled over, you begin to spill things about yourself, details to humanize yourself, right? I work at this institution. I live in this neighborhood. My children's names are this, right? Like, see me as human. And how often does that fail us at the, at the, in the end? You know, and so if we're if we're collecting material wealth, if we're trying to humanize ourselves through our narrative and none of that is working. 
what what will work to humanize each other so that we can even get to the point where we can talk about treating each other as human, right? Like, can we even see that? And I even, you, we, we constantly have these, these conversations that are so very much black and white, um, but we're talking about intraracial violence too, right? Um, what Kina called manufactured violence, right? Because organic violence lives in the world, right? I don't know if we, you ever watched those animal shows, but it gets real. <laughs> it gets real in the forest, right? So like violence occurs in life. But this type of manufactured violence that occurs because of a refusal to, to treat each other as humans, right? Whether it's medical racism and the denial of pain, right? Pain perception. You're, you are Black. You're strong. You don't feel pain. You don't need pain meds. Um, like, how do we even, just sitting in that, it's a painful sit. The idea that I'm not even considered human to folks who just see me in passing. And not, there's no question there. It's just the moment of just sitting in that muck, right? How do we create the conditions for abolition to exist when we don't even acknowledge each other as human, let alone treat each other in humanistic ways? Yeah. I mean, um, this conversation, uh, has me thinking about Sylvia Winter's work and she talks about how we don't, we black people um, and insert uh, oppressed group don't have access to the capital H human. We just won't. So how can we change the way that we organize to move away from, I'm extrapolating here. So. Please, Sylvia Winter scholars, please don't come at me. I'm, I'm extrapolating. Um, <laughs> how can we <laughs> shift the way that we create campaigns, how we um, work within our organizations to get away from this, we got to change hearts and minds thing? Because hearts and minds, as we know, at the end of the day, if the hearts and minds don't think that you deserve life, what what you gonna do? Martin King tried to change hearts and minds, and he did not die in his sleep comfortably at seventy five. No, he did. The state killed him. Period. The state killed him. And to bring it back, you know, we're we're at a. This is housed at a, a Christian university. Jesus himself did not die peacefully at seventy three at his house. He was killed by the state. So if we are, and, and, and I think that's, that's the tension. I don't, I think often we try to run away from that, that to act like we have the answers. We don't, we don't know. But at the very least, we can try some stuff and see what happens. Um, and so that, that's my goal with my research is just to show what people have tried, how people have done a mix of uh, electoral organizing, which to me is a little bit cringe, but it, it's, it's a tactic. It's not the tactic, but it's a tactic. Using electoral organizing, using mutual aid, um, using direct action, using boycott, um, 
using all of these different tactics in service of a larger strategy and vision for abolition. Nobody has the answers, even um, one of the organizations I study, Critical Resistance, has been around since 1998. Their mission has been to eradicate the prison industrial complex since then. The prison industrial complex is still alive and well. It's still, still doing great. Doing great, feeling great. So clearly, we still got some work to do. I, I don't think all of that burden should be on radical organizations. I think there is a place for everyday people to do the work of, at, at the very least, dismantling the way that the carceral state shows up in our lives in small ways and big ways. Um, but it's going to take all of us. It's going to absolutely take all of us because it can't be this uh, 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of people doing this work. It's a systemic problem, which means like we can hit individuals until we turn blue in the face. But at the end of the day, it's much, much bigger. It's much, much bigger. It's not one police department. It's not one police officer. It's not one governor. It's the whole thing. Yeah, I appreciate that frame. Um, it's literally going to take us all, right? Because hearts and minds and good people don't change laws and policies. Laws and policies don't change people. And let's be real honest. Every human being has the capacity to do both good and bad. Right. So this idea that if you do this thing, you're a bad person, but because you don't do this thing, you're a good person. So you can't possibly have done these other things, too. Right. People. Create these systems. And then these systems create people. And we all have the capacity to be on the wrong side of history at some point. Right. Because all of us have the capacity to marginalize those who may be more marginalized than us and be marginalized by those who have less marginalization than us, right? And so the, the, this, this idea that, because one of the things I've been thinking about is the only, the only way we're going to move the needle is if folks who have power, white men, stop taking this so personal, right? How, how many of the folks who we are attempting to meet at their learning age are too offended from taking it personal that they can't even show up to learn about how these things impact people? And I'm, this, this idea that I'm a good person, I got black friends, I got Muslim friends, I got Jewish friends, like I'm a good, my best friend is trans, like I got good, I'm a good person. That doesn't mean that you don't perpetuate harm. And it also doesn't mean that you're absolved from the harms that you perpetuated, right? And so I'm, I'm often thinking about what does it take to shift out of this hearts and minds conversation? Because let's be real, we can change your heart and mind to your blue in the face. We can make you the most golden person that ever walked the earth, Jesus status, and you still can cause harm. It does not absolve you from causing harm, right? So even the hearts and minds conversation beyond we got to change the people is that doesn't mean that the people won't screw up in the future, right? 
Right. So again, like that, that whole conversation, when we talk about basic, that's, that is 20,000 times more basic than defund the police. Changing hearts and minds. Great people do awful things because we're human. That's called being human, you know? One thing I wanted to say, because I, I think sometimes uh, our definitions can get a little bit slippery. So I want to say that we all do harm all the time, all the time. But harm is relative, right? So there's the, the harm of someone like Barack Obama, who was president, who deported um, thousands and thousands of people. That harm is at a different level than like an interpersonal harm where I tell Dr. Johnson to shut up. Not nice, but not the same. I think the difference here is harm and hurt. Right. You telling me to shut up will hurt me temporarily, but it's not really causing me harm. Harm is harm is huge and it's it's it can be systemic and it is prolonged. This good bad dichotomy. Yes, like you said, stupid. <laughs> um this good bad dichotomy is stupid. <laughs> it's yes. Dumb. Yes, not great. But what that dichotomy does and it exists in all facets of our society is that it creates a distinction between those who are worthy of resources and those who are not. And in my research, I, and in my life, just as a person who's passionate about abolition, I work very closely with incarcerated people. And this dichotomy between people who are good enough for access to educational classes, to trade, to communication, and those who are too bad, too far gone, deserve to be um, sort of segregated from society, that justifies the carceral state. And so one of the questions that abolitionists always get, the first question typically, okay, I hear what you're saying, but what about the people who do X, Y, and Z? And we can probably, um, all fill in what those three things are. Um, but that's always the question. Like, what do we do with those people? And to bring it back to this conversation about harm, people who do bad things, really, really bad things, are simply rehearsing the harm that exists at a sy systemic level. They're not inventing a new harm. They're practicing what already exists. So if we want to segregate those people, which we do through prisons, jails, death row, um, executing them, a very final segregation, and not attend to the harms that they're rehearsing, we're still in the same paradigm. This whole minds and hearts, good person, bad person, I'm a good person, I can't be racist. It is, it is that thinking that creates a barrier to change. Right. And it, it's the same distinction we use between people who are unhoused and people who are housed. You know, what did they do? Well, I, that'll never happen to me because I don't make those decisions. No, all of us are one circumstance, one decision, one issue away from being unhoused too. And now that we are seeing us, the U.S. fall into another recession, some of us will be unhoused who have said those things, right? And so this, 
again, taking it back to this idea of a refusal to, to treat people in inhumane ways. That for me, the empathy, the ability to empathize with someone who has found themselves in a place because they're rehearsing these harms and us assuming we will never be there. That's a lack of humanity, right? And it's, it's, it's not, and I mean, empathy is also weaponized, right? Empathy is a thing that is absolutely weaponized that prevents real change. Mindfulness is weaponized to prevent real change. So oh, self-care is now weaponized to prevent real change. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation that we can get into on a future podcast because I'm sure folks will be like, what are you talking about? Trust me on that one. <laughs> but these, these moments, these conversations that we are having are, are creating a, an invisible labor that prevents us from doing other kinds of work. And so I really need us as a whole to depart from those moments and start getting into this muck that you are talking about, right? This refusal to see to, to not see people as human and to not treat people as human. Anyway, so yes, talk to me about the future. So what's next for Dr. Yannick? Where are we going? What are we doing? Where can we find your work? Where can we read about the stuff that you're doing? Because clearly you are doing the damn thing. So tell us about it. That's very sweet. Um, so in the fall, I will be starting as an assistant professor of modern U.S. history at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. I'm very excited about that. Um, I never quite fashioned myself as a historian, but I guess somebody did. So I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited about doing that work. Um, I'll be teaching courses on, um, in the fall, I'll be teaching a class on Black power and civil rights, largely construed, so not just the 50s and 60s, but thinking about a longer duration of a civil rights movement um, beginning in the 1940s to the present. And then I will be teaching a class on gender, race, and policing as well in the fall. Um, in terms of my, yes, very exciting. Uh, in terms of my research, um, I have a website. It's www.jaden, J-A-D-E-N, J-A-N-A-K.com. Um, and you can find my articles. Um, so if you would like to contact me, uh, learn more about my research or get access to an article, um, anything like that, uh, please just find me through my website and I will be happy uh, just through the contact me portion. I'll be happy to send you um, whatever I have and answer any questions that you have. Um, yeah, I think that's all. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Yannick. It's been a pleasure to to chat with you about some real serious stuff. But even more so, I'm excited to see what you do with your career, with your life and how your vision comes to life through your good works. So thank you so much for all the work that you do, the work you've been doing, the work you continue to do, because um, it's real in these academic streets. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe.